Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. What is small and what is big? And no, I'm not reading from Dr. Seuss from my girl's uh, bookshelf. But it's really curious, why do we draw lines and silos in the banking world around small business? Small businesses generate 44% of U.S. economic activity, yet are often misunderstood and ping-ponged between the consumer and commercial parts of the bank. This week, Derek Sutton, Vice President of Product and Experience at Autobooks, and Allison Netzer, Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Nimbus, and I talk about the SMB ping-pong challenge. Small business has been just thrown into the limelight through PPP in the last year. But the reality is small business is not only the lifeblood of the U.S. economy and a global economy, it is for many banks, and particularly the community and regional banks, you know, the lifeblood of what, you know, who and what they serve and how they approach the market. But at the same time, for as important as small businesses are, there's a lot of misunderstanding and maybe not enough depth of you know where they shouldn't. Derek, why don't we start with you? Because Autobooks was really built around the small business from the start. How do you even begin to think about it as a category? Because it, it, I think most of the banks and even the starts we talk to, we throw out small business or SMB and everyone nods their head and says like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But do we really, like, is that just lazy? Yeah, I, you know, when we first got into um, working with financial institutions on small business, a lot of what we had had to do early on and still continue to do is we actually believe we're, we're trying to help create or define the category because it's so broad. And so right now, you know, financial institutions, I mean, to a person, they'll give you a different definition of what small business banking is. And, you know, they'll give you maybe a different niche or or specific use cases where their financial institution is finding a lot of success. And that therefore kind of like defines small business um, banking for them, small businesses in general. So yeah, I think the industry has a lot of maturing to do when it comes to clear definitions. And I think small business is probably too broad of a term, quite frankly. I think we need to work on on terms that are maybe a little bit more, more market segmented. So Allison, you'd also sell into you know, that this is a segment and as Derek said, probably should be multiple segments. How do you start to slice and dice and even make sense? Because I always find it weird that if you define it based on its potential lending capacity, that seems like the a very bankery way to do it, but actually isn't so actionable. No, I, I agree completely. I think the, the labeling of the category, I would agree with Derek. I think small business is too broad. It's just like using the word banking. Like, what does that, yeah. you know, what does that mean? Um, and, and so I think, you know, terms are important, right? When you say small banking, I think one of the big misconceptions or small business banking is not every business wants to be small. And so you kind of ask like, how do you see mm -hmm. them? How do you segment them? And I know this is big at audiobooks as well. It's what are the outcomes they're trying to achieve? And if you segment them by their, you know, their their loan capacity, 
you're going to miss the boat or you are missing the boat, right? Which is they started this business to grow. And if you don't see them through a growth lens, if your language doesn't reflect that, if your products don't reflect that, you know, then you've missed, you've missed the boat entirely. It's not a product set. It's not even a customer set, right? These are consumers are consumers of lots of things and you need to sort of address them as, as such, both in the language you use, where it is in the institution. That's what, when you talk about, you know, people nodding their heads, the first question I ask is, where does SMB reside in your FI? And has that been the same for the last five years? Because you're not gonna get momentum, you're not gonna get the political power to drive change within the FI if you're ping-ponging it back and forth between retail and commercial every couple of years. Well, and that does seem like it, it alternates between its commercial minus and consumer plus, right? Right, right. And if you had to pick a side of the fence, which you know, should a bank begin to side on? Fair question. I would say consumer plus. That's just a, a personal bias of mine. But I also go back to these business owners are consumers as well, right? And if they were a pie, the majority of their life would be as a consumer. And so I think I would, I, if you couldn't do a third category, I would do consumer plus. Yeah, I, I would actually, so I would, um, it's, it, to me, it's very, I, I have a hard time articulating some of this. Stuff. It should just be business banking. Yep. And, and you should build solution sets that attract different types of businesses to them. And I almost find it a bit, I don't know if the offensive is the right word, but I just find it really, it's like basically marketing is one. We're telling all these people, you're small businesses. But when right. you, when you like my mom and dad own small businesses, but it was big to them. It was big to our family. It was 100% of their income. Why do we have to call people small businesses? I mean, they're, they're doing something major in their own lives. They are contributing to their local economies. They're paying, um, you know, uh, in Alice, in our last conversation, not only themselves, but oftentimes their business creates economic opportunity for another business owner. And so I think small business is something like we've kind of done as a marketing term, as, a, as an industry term. We've passed it down to people. They ended up picking up and adopting it almost as like this um, kind of banner that they wear. Uh, you know, we've got small business month and all this stuff. But like, why can't it just be more business banking? Here's solutions. You may happen to do $5 million a year in annual revenue. You may do $500,000 a year. You may do $50 million, but you may need the same tool, right? You may need yep. a way to get paid online, as an example. Well, and they approach it from a different place. We were doing a deep dive with a group of the Alloy Labs banks around you know, what in a return to never normal again, you know, these SMBs and these relation, new relationships since community banks really, you know, came to the table uh, for these as the lender of last resort to keep a lot of the small smaller businesses alive. And it was actually our CFO made the comment that no one starts a small business because they secretly want to be a finance professional, right? <laughs> you know, like, you know, the last thing my landscaper wants, who runs, frankly, a mini empire I know up and down, you know, our street, you know, and he and I were talking about his banking. I know weird yeah. things to talk about with your landscaper that, you know, it, it just, he doesn't feel loved and understood by his bank. Yeah. I, 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 I could see that. And I think that's why um, what Alice and team are doing at Nimbus is, is pretty provocative, not even provocative, but the right thing to do. Um, and I think that's why these niche vertical solutions are kind of winning out in many cases is because they're speaking to a landscaper, understanding their needs implicitly, 
and then just embedding, you know, banking tools or financial tools into the workflow. And that just resonates more, you know, with, with your landscape mafia person there, Jason. Allison, why don't you break down like the Nimbus approach and how you got have reoriented the strategy around, you know, the micro consumer sets is super interesting. Can you, you know, go into a little more depth about how you guys are approaching the market now? Sure. Well, I think Derek described it perfectly. So, you know, if, if audiobooks doesn't work out, maybe he can he can jump over over to Nimbus. Um, but it's it is about conversation at the risk of oversimplifying it. So we start with what is what is the hook, right? What is the what is that that whether it's that pain point, that challenge that your landscaper is feeling that can be addressed. And sometimes it's addressed with technology. Sometimes it's addressed simply with just good marketing. But at the end of the day, it's about adopting a common language, which is the business's language. And if you don't know it, ask. It's seeing, like we talked about, their business through a growth lens. And then thinking broadly, seeing the business owner as a multi-faceted consumer. So quick example, um, we developed a bank concept for 18-wheeler drivers, and I spent nine hours at a Love's truck stop on the way to Houston at talking to the people at the restaurant, talking to the truckers. That doesn't make me an expert, but it does make me interested, and it does make me have a sense of where they get their information from, how they like to speak, and it just builds, you know, I know we all use the word empathy a lot nowadays, but I really saw that this is a challenge. It's not that they need a better banking product. They need some understanding. They cross state lines. They have incredibly difficult tax situations, which to your point is not why they got certified to be a CDL driver. And so having that surprise at the end of the year put at least half of the gentlemen I spoke to in a real stressful situation because they did not know that they would have that issue. So that's literally what our concept addresses is the tax situation of 18-wheeler drivers. Pretty mm -hmm. narrow, but there are 485,000 people that had tax issues that were 18-wheeler or contract 18-wheeler wow. drivers last year. Wow. That's hey, a I big enough market. Yeah, ahead, that, that's huge. I want I want to ask you about language, Allison, because I, you know, you know, I'm a fan of that. So what I commonly try to convey to financial institutions is your marketing pages and really what you're trying to communicate out to your business owners are really account analysis routines thrown up on a website and try to put some marketing language around it. Mm -hmm. You're basically saying, mm -hmm. here's how we're going to service charge your account. Here's the transactional fees we're going to charge you. Here's the way to maybe get some of those fees waived. And here's all of our fees for wires, ACH, whatever. And so for a industry that really, especially now, like I'm kind of talking to community bankers here, for an industry that prides itself on personal service, we really talk in a lot of transactions. We're trying to create transactional relationships with business owners. That's you know the antithesis of what you say if somebody comes into the branch and the way that you interact with them in person. So there's a disconnect there. So yeah. how does that, so understanding what the trucker needs in your use case, how do you take that and use that um, language you receive to them to actually create a better inviting marketing experience for that, for that business owner? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and an example of the language uh, issue that you've used before that I love is the, the positive pay piece and how we call how we call it positive pay as you know, as if someone's going to get what that is. Um, but with the with the 18 wheeler drivers, because the tax issue kept coming up, we, we kept that thread going. Like, what is the outcome that mm. you're wanting? And it was, I just need to be able to set aside some cash for that bill. And if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it on my own. So this is not a, you know, the mind blowing feature functionality that we came up with. It's just your standard roundup feature. And the way we articulated it is round up and put that towards your tax fund. And if you want to contribute more, we'll tell you how much more you should based on based on national estimates. But we're going to help you get there doing the work that you already do, because they said, I can't I can't change my routes to do different things. I can't you know, this, these are the things I can't do. And so the language was very simple. Save now for tax day. That's it. That's the headline. And, and that's the language that we use. And we do not get into any of the, uh, the gory details that you mentioned. Yeah. That, and the reason I love that right there, what you just said, that's what I was talking about earlier. It should just be business banking and you found a need from a business owner, these truckers, and you said, it's Roundup Savings. That's a tool that's already in place in the bank today. Mm -hmm. And most people didn't think that's a business tool. They thought that was a consumer tool. Mm -hmm. No, that's the wrong mindset. Like you built this capability, leverage it where it's needed. If the, if the customer needs it, regardless of segment, we need to enable those type of features for the outcome that they're looking for, not because they're in a um, market segment that we put them into a core analysis routine. Mm. Yeah. Well, in building on that, when you look at the level of innovation that has happened in the direct to consumer sort of fintech and the tools and the features, the ability to get paid two days early or to control spend, to map spend, to turn cards on and off, we just haven't seen that same level of focus within you know this segment of business banking and i don't even think we we see it maybe not in the same sexy fashion and kind of call it the corporate banking right the large enterprise piece you know yeah there's you know been integration into erps and you know that but that's really kind of the realm of custom build but in this prosumer segment why haven't we seen more innovation or is it out there and it just isn't bubbling to the surface yet i think it's mostly due to fraud so, or the, the perception of fraud. And so for one, it's just even hard to start a business relationship with a financial institution. Um, you know, I, financial institutions will joke around and talk about how, you know, we basically want, you know, an ounce of blood and, you know, your firstborn to open up a business account. And, um, and you better prove that, that that's actually your firstborn, because if you don't, we're definitely not going to let you in. And so I think, Jason, when you start with that as the entry point, good luck doing the other things that are taking place in consumer banking that are racing ahead. And so I think that the technology is there to do things more provocative for business owners, um, i.e., you know, we're implementing a solution now where when a business owner gets paid, we can push that credit directly to their account in real time. And businesses are over the moon about that. And we're going to charge a small fee for them to be able to do it. And it's a, ironic. We take that to many financial institutions are like, you're going to charge a fee to do that. 
And, you know, the thing is, I'm like, don't, aren't you guys like really good at charging fees? <laughs> like, what's the problem here? The, uh, the business owner finds a lot of value in it. We just need to do it. Um, but they're, they ask, you know, an inordinate amount of questions about fraud and liability and things like that. Um, and not really focus on the outcome that the business owner uh, is looking for of like, I want the money in my account now because I need to head to the supply house. Because if I pay 1% on that transaction, I can save 5% on my supply costs if I pay in cash versus deferring that expense. Well, I think this is one of the key elements you know, to pull on is we get hung up on as if banks and the financial institution are the center of the universe, but it's not about the money. The money's doing something for the small business owner. And the same tr is true for the consumer. It's just the small businesses doing it with a lot more complexity and moving parts related to it. You know, it isn't about um, you know, being able to get a loan, it's about funding growth and it's not about getting early yeah. access to cash. It's about being able to pay employees and not worry about payroll bouncing. You know, it's not about the, you know, where is this unsecured line of credit going? It's like, no, that creates additional capacity for me to be able to pay for my kids' college tuition because my business and my personal life to Allison's point, in some sense, if a, as a small business owner begin to blur Right. You know, like I borrow from one to pay the other all the time. Right. And I think the other barrier kind of, you know, Derek described there's there's external kind of friction in terms of just signing up for the account. And then how do you unlock the the prosumer consumer tools within the bank that they already have that would be valuable to the business owner? So you've got external friction. And then you've got internal friction. I think some of that comes back to to where does your business banking practice reside in having the political power, you know, to be able to to bring things over from one roadmap to another. But it also comes back to the growth lens. Like Derek mentioned, you can charge fees. Like having a strong business banking practice is not altruism. You can make money as a bank on this if you see it as a growth lens. You can charge 1% because they'll pay it because they can make 5%, like Derek said. So I think it's going back to the naming and kind of the stock imagery of coffee shops and the struggle. Like it is a struggle, but no one's waiting for a bank to save them. They're waiting for someone to partner and help them. Um, and so we just got to get out of this mindset that they're mom and pop struggling coffee shop that you know doesn't know how to spell you know loan um these are these are smart intelligent calculated risk takers that banks should quite frankly be honored to partner with yeah and i think i think a group that's doing this well uh to their credit is square and mm -hmm. they're understanding the outcomes of business owners one of the things i love to do in webinars is pull up a bank's marketing page and the square marketing page and it's the stark difference. You go through the bank's webpage and you clearly see we're talking banker to you, you know, and like that thing I was talking earlier about transactional. You pull up Square's website and literally in the middle of it is a beautiful, gorgeous picture of a business owner. Um, and the messaging is literally around their face. And like what that tells you is this is about you, business or like you're literally at the center of our experience. When you go through their menu items, it speaks to the outcomes look that the business owner is looking for. I need to um, pay my people. I need to prepare for the future. I need to move money, right? And so it's all built around them. So here's an interesting take though. So Square's done this really great job 
of attracting business owners, solving a problem, helping them get paid, basically move to this digital digital commerce uh, uh, world. The interesting thing is a lot of that activity is taking place inside of consumer accounts in banking today. We've looked at the data, we've analyzed it, we've gone back to, to financial institutions. We were looking at a financial institution's data the other day. They had 82,000 square users inside of their organization. Wow. Doing Not cash apps, square users. Square, square, doing $2.3 billion of deposits. Okay. Of the 82,000, only 30,000 are in business bank accounts. 50,000 of those are in consumer, okay? So that same organization and others, when we go talk to them about turning on integrated invoicing and in-app payment acceptance to consumer accounts, will say, well, we have BSA issues with that. If they're conducting business transactions in the account, we need to analyze them different. We need to think about them differently. My retort back to the rest of the industry now is, are we gonna hold Square to that same standard for QuickBooks or Stripe? Well, as an industry, are we are we not supposed to, or if you're kind of holding up your fiduciary responsibility and your compliance, at what point do you go to those account holders and say, okay, you either need to disconnect Square from your consumer account, or you need to move to a business account because you, we are out of compliance. I think that's a really interesting thing that we need to wrestle with. I want to call BS on the BSA argument I, I, that, the, sure. that the banks come back with, right? Like, yep. yes, you know, there was regulation put down on the books. There are approaches to solve this that we can go after in the bank if they're willing to step outside of the box of, but this is the way we've always done it. They can go begin to solve that. It's frankly lazy in my mind. I, I, that I, I agree, Jason, but it's those are the types of things that they put up as barrier almost to say, ah, we don't want to take on that challenge, right? Yes, but yes. yet somebody else is coming in and, you know, like taking advantage basically of your lack of proactiveness. Kind of going back uh, just sort of selfishly for a moment to, to, to net, right? That's some of the other kind of pushback is, well, if we, you know, if we focus narrowly that, you know, that that ruins our profitability, you know, we can't can't possibly do that. We can't segment small business even smaller right and i think it's uh and, and sometimes compliance is there but sometimes you know the other piece is is just the the fear of the fear of focus uh and the fear of focusing narrowly on the customer because that's a very fluid uh way to do it as opposed to seeing them as as an account holder so oh, i love that you brought up fear yeah. it takes courage to do simplicity Mm -hmm. And it takes courage to say no to things. You know, if you look at a bank, regardless of size, they're offering the same breadth of products. When we talk to these banks, it's like, but who's your core customer? And who do you focus on? Right. And they don't, they're afraid of leaving somebody out. And right. And so they think that by, you know, casting, you know, more rocks, they're more likely to, you know, hit the customer. And the reality is they're hitting nothing yeah. when they're doing that because yeah. they're afraid to focus. When it, there's... There's nothing wrong with casting a wide net, but nothing wrong with general purpose banking. Derek and I have, have talked about this, but you, you still need to look in the net and see what you caught. And in addition to being a great general banking partner, you can also be an excellent partner with the different types of fish that you caught, the different types of niches. It's a both and. They don't cannibalize each other. And it's a long way around to the, the square example. 
your customers are using consumer type tools. It does not, it does not cannibalize your business to have a niche. It does not cannibalize your business to introduce those tools in because they're already doing it somewhere else. Um, so I think that that fear, uh, hopefully will be replaced by courage. Um, certainly after everyone listens to this podcast, I think it'll be a national movement. Well, you know, Derek, I think this conversation is going to continue at an event that you're hosting soon. Can you share a little bit more about, you know, what's going to be happening and who should be attending? Yeah. So, I mean, I love these kind of conversations. I have these with friends like Allison, you know, Jason, you know, we caught up at FinTech DevCon last week, had the same conversation. And so what we decided to do at Autobooks is really not put together an Autobooks event, but more or less a small business event. And so just try to bring together who I think are people that have a um, very informed and well-educated and thoughtful positions on the topic of small business banking, both a group of you know people that are running companies, industry speakers, and bankers to say, I think the, the small business banking um, uh, conversation needs to be moved forward. And so we basically started a group called smbankingforward.com. Uh, it's an event. It's a virtual event, October 5th and 6th. It's two half days, and the whole conversation is going to be around the topic of small business banking. And I want people to come and hear, um, you know, from Ron Shevlin talking about this macro environment that we talked about, but also then hear from Allison and uh, you know, digital bank owners like Corey LeBlanc at Locality and Melissa Eggleston at NBKC, and hear from people that are actually not just talking about how to move small business forward, but are doing something about it as well. So I want you to walk away from this, this virtual event saying, all right, I'm understanding how small business banking is being redefined. I have a better understanding about maybe what it takes to attract business owners. But then in the second half of the event, what do I do with that? How do I then activate those relationships and grow them long-term? Uh, in full transparency, we want this to be uh, an event that takes legs from here moving forward, maybe has in-personal regional events next year, we want to build a community of people that really care about small business banking and want to move it forward in general. So would love to have anyone and everyone attend October 5th and 6th. Fantastic. It, I mean, you've got a good lineup. I feel honored to attend. I feel like I'm maybe the weakest link in your lineup. <laughs> so I'm going to go get my small yeah. business game on to bring some thought provoking. But when we think about the importance of this conversation, the level of innovation that this group deserves and is underserved. It is the lifeblood of our economy. It is the lifeblood for many of a family, you know, that that small business is that sole source of income. And, you know, an emerging class of people who are dependent on the side hustle, right? They didn't never intended to become a small business owner, but now, you know, in the state of the economy or their financial lives, they are because they've got a side hustle attached to it. And I know that's one of the niches that Allison's pretty passionate about Very. as well. Yeah. Very. And I think that's kind of the the side hustle becoming the hustle and going back to, to Derek and language. I mean, by 2027, 50% of the workforce will be gig workers or independent workers, whatever term you'd, you'd like to use. So it's not a it's not a side thing anymore in terms of the market that you can address. And the exciting thing is there are many niches within the niche. Um, that banks and, and credit unions can look at. So I, I think that's the exciting next frontier for sure. Fantastic. And what a great way to end. As we go into break, more information on how you can be attending this exciting event. And after the break, 
JP, Brett and I, in a rare moment that we were all able to get on together, talk about how the world has changed in a post 9-11 world and the ever exciting topic of KYC and AML. When it comes to small business banking, business as usual no longer cuts it. To help financial institutions develop a deeper understanding of the shifting market landscape and to start developing strategies to spark future growth, the team at AutoBooks has put together a small business banking focused event. It's an event designed to help move small business banking forward. The virtual event will take place over two and a half days, October 5th and 6th, and will feature both industry leading speakers and bankers. To learn more about the event agenda and to check out the impressive speaker lineup, visit smbankingforward.com. That's smbankingforward.com. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs, custom tailored for your situation and your team, to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at alloylabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. It's a rare day here. We actually have all three hosts together in our virtual studios. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's uh, good to see and hear both of you at the same time instead of just recorded. Uh, Jason, super interesting segment with AutoBooks. And, and I think that dovetails nicely into what we're going to talk about here in the second half. We're spending a little bit of time looking back as we look forward. You know, we're recording this just on the heels of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And um, you know, when you think about some of the things that how that changed the world in a very big way, not the least of which is the Patriot Act in the banking segment. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what were some of the you know, groundswell moments over the past 20 years that brought us to where we are today. And, and what does this look like over the next uh, 20 years. But, but first of all, Brett, 9-11, 2001, were you living in New York then? I was not, JP. I was actually in Hong Kong. I think most people are familiar with the show and have listened to me. No, I spent some time in Hong Kong a number mm -hmm. of years. Um, but I do remember it clearly. It's certainly one of those moments like, you know, where were you when JFK was shot? Um, you know, I, I, I remember having the TV on and just watching um, with such great trepidation and um, you know, the, 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 obviously, you know, the first impact, um, you know, and seeing that unfolding, but then watching live as the second uh, plane hit, it, it was just, it was just such a surreal moment. I was on the phone with a friend of mine. Uh, well, actually he was a coworker, a v VP of operations for motor media at the time he was in New York and mm. he quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, prophetically, 
um, you know, predicted that this would have, you know, significant changes in terms of our business and the whole dot-com phenomenon at the time and, and otherwise, and, and turned out he was right. It, it, you know, it, it's not just lived in our memories institutionally and otherwise, but it, it obviously has resulted in significant changes in, in simple things like how we move around and travel and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, um, I then visited New York just a couple of months later in the November um, for a, um, you know, related to the business that I was working with at the time. And then I ended up um, uh, trying to get, get down to see a shuttle launch in Cape Canaveral and the security, you know, the, the effort for that was just just incredible, you know. So I certainly uh, do, do remember the event. Yeah. Jason, where were you? Uh, I was in Boston and I had actually taken flight 175 to LA the week before. Hmm. Um, right. Wow. So I was a venture capitalist at the time and our headquarters was in New York and in Midtown and a bunch of, you know, the people you know, at the time did the Hamptons house you know, thing, you know, were traders and work mm -hmm. down in and around, you know, that area. And so you know, it was interesting when the realization of like, Ooh, off by a week, um, you know, sort of thing, but it, it also began to evolve some of the investment themes that I was looking at. So FinTech was not a big space, but I had come out of, you know, financial services. That's what I focused on while I was at monitor and like you do what you know. In my case, it was things that sell into FIs. And it was one of the things, the central thesis on why I invested in Memento, which was eventually acquired by FIS. And what Memento did was it uh, took unstructured data and I, like I called it like the Googleified internal data. But one of the use cases was looking for clusters and patterns that you know you'd normally couldn't identify in AML was one of those key things as was KYC. And so like use cases were both fraud and, you know, AML, um, you know, related to that. We looked at a bunch of other things. It was just kind of interesting. I had four term sheets out um, September 10th and ended up executing on none of them by September 12th. Mm. And, you know, just like the talk about those things that changed the world in, in terms of like, in an instant, the amount of kind of change that happens in the environment. Well, priorities certainly change, right? It, what's important and, you know, what's critical to get done, um, it, it, it obviously changed. Yeah, and, and I think also a massive increase in complexity. Um, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about the Cold War and how, you know, frightening it was to, you know, as, as young kids, uh, you know, back in the day being told to duck and cover and be prepared for a, uh, a, a nuclear attack. Uh, but pretty much we were we were pretty sure it was going to be the Russians, right, if it came yeah. at all. And uh, the world seemingly, um, you know, maybe not so black and white in retrospect, but but seemingly kind of clear about um, you know, where the lines were drawn and 9-11 uh, and, and the aftermath really began to create a whole lot more complexity. And one of the ways that the industry wanted to uh, address that, or at least the government wanted the industry to address that was the Patriot Act. You know, it came, came into law 45 days after 9-11. I mean, really rushed through Congress. Only one senator voted against it. 
you know, I, I, I kind of forgot about this, but do you guys uh, may or may not know or recall, this is actually an acronym. Do you guys know what Patriot Act stands for? No idea. It's the, it's the USA Patriot Act. And, and you might think USA is the United States of America, but it's actually the Uniting and Strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. When, when, when government makes acronyms, yes. Well, I don't know who's worse, government or bankers, but well, I, I don't know. I want to know how long they spent on the acronym versus the actual act because it's exactly. really had some loopholes, but sounds good. Exactly. Well, and and in our time today, I, I don't want to debate all the pros and cons of, uh, of the Patriot Act, but let's just accept as fact that it certainly made bankers' lives a lot more complex. Um, and this comes at a time where new technologies were emerging and very interesting, Chase. I didn't realize the timeline tie uh, to Memento in this, as, as you were saying that. And, you know, there were just a, a lot of impacts. Well, you know, one of the things is obviously this you know, whole terrorist financing AML thing. The compliance costs of banks have gone up considerably as a result of this. Now, you know, in no small part because of what happened in at 9-11. Um, but if we look at the effectiveness of the Patriot Act at, at stopping money laundering or stopping terrorist financing, it's been woefully inadequate. You know, and but it has increased compliance costs significantly. It's uh, increased financial inclusion because now you have heavier identity requirements that people can't meet. Um, and so, you know, from a financial services perspective, I'd say you know Patriot Act has been a net negative um, in terms of friction to customers and you know efficiency and IT costs and, and so forth. Um, we certainly need a new paradigm moving forward. I, I I get what the Patriot Act was trying to achieve. Achieve. But the reality is we stop about 1% of money laundering today with all of this massive compliance infrastructure that we have. It's just not working the way we intended it to. So if there's one lesson we've learned out of this, that you know, while knee-jerk reactions for a major event like 9-11 are, um, you know, are expected, uh, that you know, we also need to have these regular review points afterwards saying, is this really working and is this something that we should look to uh, to revise or reform. Well, and so this is part of you know, one of my early impressions was a class I took with Stephen Jay Gould on evolutionary biology. And trust me, I will tie this back to the regulatory frameworks. But part of he wrote this fundamental paper that evolution is not this linear thing that you know we think of, well, most of us think of, where you know the small single cell you know organisms in the ocean you know, crawling onto land, going, you know, into, you know, standing upright like monkeys to the human piece. But it's actually, there's this punctuated equilibrium. And I'd say point to, you know, 9-11 was a period of punctuated equilibrium, right? Where the world just changed fundamentally in the same way that, you know, when giant asteroids hit the earth and the world was fundamentally different and the dinosaurs went away. I'd say COVID is also, there have been a lot of evolutionary seeds planted along the way, but now COVID happens that just kind of the, the balloon yeah. has burst. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the impact of this uh, in terms of identity infrastructure alone, you know, the COVID passport and all of the sort of stuff uh, that, that we're going to have, 
um, you know, obviously this was probably going to happen at some point anyway, because as you digitize the services layer for medical, education, healthcare, you know, finance, uh, you know, et cetera, um, you, you know, if you're accessing these services digitally, you need, you need a robust digital identity infrastructure. But this is really starting to make us think about what, what is important in terms of that identity infrastructure to make sure that we protect citizens, that, you know, we're safe doing stuff it's um it's certainly going to probably accelerate the the need for that i think yeah and on the regulatory front this is where the challenge is in the best of days regulators don't keep up and regulation does not keep up with that slow incremental grind and it is not at all situated to deal with punctuated equilibrium and i think you know we're about to see another you know, puncture in how the banking world operates as we move towards embedded finance, where we don't even realize who we're conducting financial transactions with. And Brett, I think you hit one of the most important keys to this, which is we can't just put things on the books and then not revisit their effectiveness, that it, the regulation itself needs to be evolutionary. Maybe even you know, some of it needs to have its own punctuated equilibrium. Others is probably is sufficient to you know, do the test and learn. But I think, JP, you've heard me describe this. I call it the monumental approach to regulation, which is wait for something bad to happen. It's normally really bad before you're going to build a monument to it. Then you spend a lot of time arguing over what the components of the monument are and you know, lots of stakeholders, none of them end up necessarily well served. And at the end of it, after you've built this monumental thing, well, it's only the pigeons that you know make a deposit going forward. And I think that's a lot of what we've got on the books right now is things that didn't serve any segment all that well, ended up watered down and haven't been revisited in far too long. Well, and the, the thing that goes along with that is something else Brett mentioned, which is friction, right? That this was monumental in adding a lot more friction to the uh, uh, everyday banking, right? For the customers, both businesses and consumers. And I, I, I may have talked about this on the show before, but I still remember my first bank meeting ever. I came from another industry in the late 80s when I first uh, joined the banking industry, the senior vice president that hired me said, hey, what did you think of our first meeting? I said, well, do you want me to be honest? He said, yes. I said, well, I'm used to working in an industry where the number one goal was making sure we were taking care of customers. And then, then we figured out to make sure we were following rules and you know, regulations along the way. And what I kind of heard here was, hey, let's follow some regulations. And if we take care of the customers, well, that's okay too. Byproduct. And byproduct, Yeah. A happy byproduct, but still a byproduct. And, you know, that just became, you know, kind of on steroids after the Patriot Act where, you know, sir, you need to understand, you know, we have to verify your identity and we have to do all of this. And that would be one thing if it were, you know, tremendously effective. But as you both pointed out, not so much. Yeah. Well, I, uh, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, you know, when when we look at, um, you know, the, the sort of friction element around customers, to Jason's point earlier, you know, the the need to revisit regulation and tweak it 
um, you know, because of the technological changes that we're experiencing now is heightened, obviously. But you have, you know, the more regulated um, a jurisdiction is, you know, like the, in the United States, you have these laws on the books, such as the Community Reinvestment Act, which I've talked about on this show a few times, right, um, where it was assumed that financial inclusion at its most effective in 1977 was, was done through bank branches. Now we know that technology can do financial inclusion far better. We've seen that, um, you know, across the uh, the developing world. Um, but you know, when is the right point to come back and reform those earlier regulations where you made those mistakes, which added a ton of friction to the customer experience? What we tend to do instead is just put more regulations on top that add increasingly to the friction rather than revisiting stuff that we've done in the past. You know, there is there has been debate on CRA reform for at least six or seven years that I'm aware of, and it's not moving uh, meaningfully in the United States. But if you look at AML, the FATF uh, rules and things like that, the Patriot Act, uh, you know, the CIP requirements, things like that, you know, when, when is it that we're going to revisit, revisit this? I was reminded of this recently because I was doing this um, thing for uh, FIS, uh, a hackathon with some university students. And one of the university students looked at um, helping homeless people getting a bank account. And, you know, if you think about it, you, you, the obvious thing you might think of is, well, you know, they don't have a mobile phone, right? Or they don't have a phone number, but they don't have an address and they may not have an identity document. And so how is someone like that going to get access to basic banking in the regulatory environment that we've created right now. It's, it's, uh, so, um, you know, we, we have to either create identity infrastructure that's easily accessible and available, or we have to really rethink the way we, we, uh, you know, gatekeep access to financial services, but it's got to start with, um, you know, legal reform, regulatory reform. And it just, it, there doesn't seem to be the urgency for that. I know we're off on tangent a bit, but. Well, but I want to talk about regulation and the way we approach it, because it, there's a couple ways that we can begin to unpack it. You know, if we think about, you know, different ways like co-regulation and self-regulation and brings up the concept, of course, of continuous regulation, because part of what technology has enabled that we should be able to do and both sides you know, seem to fight it that you know that you'll hear the progressive saying oh if it's co-regulation now industries in bed you know with the regulators and what they're meant to protect and on the flip side of that you know you have industry itself fighting it going oh, i don't like the idea of continuous regulation even though like not only can it create more opportunities for inclusion like you said Brett it also keeps you from ending up so far off the track that it ends up being an issue, right? Like this idea of, hey, we could be technically integrated, you know, in data exchange and see in real time. And so before it becomes a massive issue, all wells in terms of what you're doing because we do it in batch or, you know, some of the, what turned out to be discriminatory policies that I think it was Ally Bank got hit for on the auto lending. Those things could have been seen much more, you know, rapidly through better data and better integration, yet neither side really wants that. Well, you, you've hit on uh, a number of important topics and you've talked about 
uh, Jason, you introduced punctuated equilibrium. And so we've agreed that you know, 9-11 and then the Patriot Act specifically to the industry was one of those. Uh, we have things like the uh, appearance of blockchain and Bitcoin, certainly the global financial crisis, the rise of of mobility and uh, broadband and smartphones, those were all pretty important, you know, lurches forward in technology that impacted anybody around finance. What do you think is the next one, or are we in it right now in the COVID world? So um, COVID's definitely one of those, and we're going to have, you know, other pandemics most likely over the next 20 to 30 years um, generated by climate change with um, the melting of uh, glaciers that re release primordial viruses and so forth. But the other one that, the other two that I talk about in the new book, Technosocialism, sorry for the plug, is, um, you know, climate change, which is a fairly obvious one, right? And so we're already starting to see that with ESG initiatives and, more focus on sustainability, renewability, the protests we see against HSBC and Barclays in the UK right now because their support for fossil fuel industries, you know, that's all part of, um, you know, that moment. But the other one that's obvious is, um, you know, large-scale automation in society. Right and how and how that will change the way we work, the way we think about um, you know assets and 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 so forth. Um, you know that's going to be the the the, in, the introduction of high level automation in society is just going to be such a significant um, you know uh, philosophical change for humanity um, because you know in 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 certainly in the last uh, you know two hundred years since the industrial revolution, work and its role in society has been significantly emphasized but if you don't need to work as much as a result of automation then it changes everything you know i think so um they're the big ones that i i talk about but the uh, the other one that um that sort of ties in with what we've been talking about certainly since 9 11 one of the other things that has emerged as a real problem societally is in inequality and so inequality contributes to this long-term concern about ec or long-term economic uncertainty. And so if you look at some of the side effects since what's happened since 9-11 compared with pre-9-11, um, we have a lot more protests going on around the world. A lot more people vocally participating in sort of these, uh, you know, policy governance, uh, you know, type uh, conversations, um, and so you have a two hundred percent increase in the number of protests that we've had in the last twenty years, but you have a thousand percent increase in participation. That spells the fact that a lot more people are concerned about the future, and and have a lot more uncertainty about the future. So nine eleven, I think, obviously contributed a great deal to that because it sort of up you know it created this upheaval of of this social norm and what we could expect in terms of our personal safety and and uh, and things like that it certainly you know did have a, a pretty interesting um side effect in that respect well Brett, you kept stealing a lot of the points that I wanted to make. I thought you were going to kind of leave it and let me pick up the climate change one you know when the US um, you know, military says the number one yeah. threat to global stability now is climate change. Like the have and the have nots around you know land that can be farmed and access to water. I think that also then points to hey, we're now entering an era of digital have and have nots. That when we get to going to reap the benefits of this automation and intelligence, are we going to see 
that you know, we have have and have nots. And we know that the greater that tension becomes and you know, the tighter that string is pulled, it does snap. We've seen several of those revolutions in the past, but the, the wars and how it reconciles in the future, I think, is going to be the most interesting aspect when we look at things like what is DeFi going to do and can AI be used to generate viruses? Because the next wars are, and revolutions are going to be fought online. Um, also, I think the other element to that is, you know, the increasing dominance of China economically and from a trade perspective. Uh, you know, I'm I'm extremely concerned how, um, you know, the U.S. geopolitically will respond to that because I, I don't think right now, foundationally, the U.S. economy has the right building blocks to compete with the Chinese economy in the 21st century. And so, you know, when that does happen, um, you know, what what is going to be the response of the U.S. to that? You know, I don't want to get into the big geopolitics, but I, the politics uh, in detail on that. But that that concerns me is how how do we deal with that that change? change. You know, if you look back, you know, um, thousands of years ago, China was a, a dominant economy. So it was, it was India, massive world powers with incredible technological advancements. Um, and so China sees it as them just returning to uh, this, this position of economic dominance where, um, you know, the US sees it as a threat to their economic dominance. So um, I don't know. Well, that's another one. Well, you've both brought up some pretty big themes. So let's close with this. I'll ask each of you, maybe uh, Jason first. So what advice do you have for leaders then giving the, this you know, potential for a continued massive sea change here? And, and I, I'd say two levels. One is entrepreneurs, and the other is for especially those in the incumbents, right, that um, you know, feel the waves of change you know, hitting their uh, infrastructure really hard here. So what should I think, you focus I think on? I, can, I think I can combine both because I, I think how they'll apply it is different, but it's the same point, which is don't fight the last war. And I would point to the number of fintechs that even though they're innovators and have raised lots of money, they're fighting the last war. That if I see you know yet another challenger bank that is, oh, we're the bank of X for Y, but it's not an actionable site. Actionable segmentation that you know delivers something that is actually differentiated, you know, like there's way too many of those. And I would say the same is true if you are an incumbent, don't rest too much on your laurels because you think your walls are tall enough and thick enough, and there's moats around, and all of this is you know going to go back to the way it was. It's not. Uh, it's going to look fundamentally different, and that requires different strategies, different approaches. And you know, one of those is you know, if you're worried about going all in on a strategy, you might want to start testing it and developing you know this idea of nimbleness within your organization structurally, in decision making and strategically now, because you know the last thing you want to do is pull out you know an Apple or an IBM where they had to pull the hail mary not once you know but you know for both of them twice. Whereas like the, there was a sea change, punctuated equilibrium in terms of what was going on, right? The mainframe goes away and let's throw the Hail Mary. We land on services, worked out well, right up until there was another sea change, you know, in the SaaS world, right? And so I'd say that idea of not fighting the last battle strategically or even like the, the forces you're building is absolutely critical. Now, Jason's stealing my thunder. 
Um, but no, I think um, don't get married to any of your sacred cows or any of your previous strategies, because the one thing that is going to characterize the 21st century is continuous upheaval, continuous disruption, accelerated rate of change. So if you're married to a strategy, you're just not going to be able to adapt. So in line with what um, you know, Jason said, you know, um, your organizations need to be adaptive and learning organizations. If, if you can emphasize one skill for individuals, it's the ability to learn new skills and adapt. That's really going to be critical for the 21st century because of change. And, and particularly because almost every industry that we're talking about as a result of the introduction of AI and automation is going to go through incredible shifts, incredible changes. Look at the energy industry right now. Like we always talk about fintech, but you know, you've got renewable generation at a fraction of the cost, you know, one eighth of the cost of generating a kilowatt of energy via coal. It's it's an unsustainable industry, but we have to retool that entire sector, not just because it's going to be cheaper to deal with renewables, um, but also because we have to make uh, this infrastructure climate resilient. Right. So that's a massive employment opportunity there, but it requires energy companies um, to completely rethink their their business models. Um, you know, we now have to have storage, uh, you know, battery storage capabilities, grid, grid, grid level batteries and things like that. Again, going off on a tangent, but adaptability is the number one skill in the 21st century. Well, in the interest of time, I think we'll leave it there, but I, I think you both give good advice. As much as we like to think about the future and try to even predict the future, um, I'm always reminded of the great quote by Alan Kay, right? The best way to predict the future is it's to, to build it. it. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's exactly right. That's it for us this week. We'll be back next week with more Breaking Banks. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.